0: Uh, this uh, evening session is uh, open to questions on Dhamma practice, on meditation. With the storm, the rain, the thunder, brings back memories of a few times I've stayed in uh, the jungle in Thailand, camping. In uh, In uh, days gone by, these occasions test our faith, our determination, our patience, put up with the difficulties of uh, rain and thunder and lightning and so on. I was just trying to recount all the times I'd got wet in the jungle, and it's more times than I can remember, many, many times, completely soaked through to the skin. Uh, I remember there's one time I went to a mountain national park on my own, and I put up my umbrella and my mosquito net in the afternoon when I arrived next to a river on the side of the mountain and just sat down to start meditation, getting comfortable and just enjoying the peace and quiet of the forest just as dusk was falling, the birds were singing it's all very nice and then suddenly just like this there's a crack of thunder and a few drops of rain about seven. By eight o'clock it was steadily raining, nine o'clock, ten o'clock. It rained all through the night till five a.m. without stopping. I had one umbrella over me and a mosquito net. So as the hours went by, I was just sitting meditation and I got all my clothing in front of me. I had my bowl, my monk's bowl. I put everything I could inside and then piled everything on top and sat meditation and the rain came down, the rain came down and the river started to rise in its, because there's so much water and the water was sort of flowing Across the ground, started flowing onto my ground sheet, so I had to lift my ground sheet up all the corners and huddle in my ground sheet. I couldn't lie down the whole night. I didn't get a wink of sleep. And the wind was steadily blowing and I was just getting wetter and wetter and wetter. Very miserable. The whole night. At five AM the the rain finally stopped and I thought, hm, mm, maybe I'll move off from this spot because I had to walk to the village for my food and you usually go at dawn which is just after five. So I picked up all my gear and I was walking across the river and I was thinking, well I've still got everything inside my bowl which is dry. Everything else, everything I was wearing, everything else was completely drenched but at least what's inside my bowl is dry, I'll be all right. walking across the river I had to cross stepping stones and the river had risen and everything was slippery and wet I just got to the middle of the river and I stepped on one rock and it was loose I went completely upside down into the water and my bowl opened so everything got completely soaked and then I walked on I got to the edge of the village and just put all my things down. By then the rain had stopped, so I started to dry things out. And an old man came out and he said, ''Oh, you're camping on the mountain, are you?'' I said, ''Yes.'' He said, ''Oh, on that mountain, the Naga is very powerful.'' ''See, it was a very powerful storm last night, a very powerful Naga.'' Yes, I agree, it's a very powerful nāga. <laughs> I'm completely soaking wet. <laughs> a nāga, for those who don't know, is a serpent god. It's supposed to protect us. The old man thought that the nāga was probably celebrating the fact that a monk had come to stay on the mountain. So it was a very wet celebration. But these times they teach us something, don't they? We have to put up with the rain and the discomfort. Sometimes maybe it's raining a lot, it makes you meditate longer because you can't go anywhere, nothing you can do. You just sit longer than you would normally sit. And maybe you get more peaceful than usual. That's happened sometimes to me when you just can't go anywhere because it's just pouring with rain, so you just keep sitting. One, two, even three hours, and you because you're sitting longer than you would normally have to put up with a bit of pain or restlessness, but you let go of that, and your mind maybe calms down and becomes more peaceful than it was before. So sometimes the rain helps us to push ourselves a little bit more. Or you notice in the forest, even you know, even animals get a bit fed up with the rain and they run around looking for shelter when it rains a lot or there's thunder and lightning. <coughs> there was one time when I was a novice monk and there's another monk in the monastery. There's just three or four of us and this was a new monk and he's very scared of animals. And this monastery was a very large forest on an island in a, a lake that was the last piece of land they offered to Ajahn Chah before he got sick and he really liked this monastery because it was a very large forest full of animals, very peaceful and it was a lake so it was very secluded and I was sent there when I was a novice monk and this other monk arrived from the city and he'd never stayed in the forest before so he was very scared And the thing he hated most in life was wild pigs. And there was dozens and dozens of wild pigs in this forest. Some of them are quite big with tusks, look quite scary. And they would run around at night making a noise. And he's very scared of them. So the teacher made him go and camp out in the forest just with an umbrella and a mosquito net to face his fear. And sometimes the only way you can let go of your fear is to go and face it, look at it. So he went out into the forest, and I was in one spot, but I was a long way away from him, maybe half a kilometer away from him. And again, as soon as we went out, set up camp, sat down to meditate, it started to rain, and a very bad storm came through. Very heavy rain, lots of wind for many hours. Got completely drenched. Um, during this storm, I noticed all the animals were running around, getting agitated. And these pigs would run around. They ran past me, but they didn't do anything to me. But then during the storm, it was so dark, and there was so much rain, and it was so chaotic in the forest with all the wind. One wild pig didn't know where it was going, so it ran under the mosquito net where this monk was huddling. So the very thing he hated most in life came to be right next to him. And this pig just sat there all night, from about nine in the evening till five a.m. till dawn. It must have been so wet and miserable, you know, he didn't want to go anywhere else because under the umbrella, at least it was dry from the worst of the rain. And he said the pig just sat next to him and he was so afraid he couldn't move so he just sat in meditation all night. So the pig made him meditate for the whole night. The pig made a lot of merit. And he could smell it, he could feel it, he could hear it wheezing. And the pig didn't mind. The pig just sat there all night having a rest and the monk just had to learn to let go of his fear. So he, said he had to look at his mind, he said in the morning he realised, well in the end pigs are not much different from us, they don't want to have to be out in the rain and they're not really that dangerous, they just go around eating roots and other things. So he said he'd learnt to let go of most of his fear by the morning. But he said it was a very difficult night for him. <laughs> the funniest one for me, I think, there was one year I stayed on the coast near Phuket Island, but further up the coast where the, the jungle meets the beach in a place where tourists don't go to. I stayed with a couple of other monks in the jungle and in the evening we'd come and sit on the beach and have a, a drink uh, watching the sea and that evening there were very dark clouds, uh, there was a thunderstorm rolling in from the sea onto the land and they come very quickly so we sitting having a drink watching this storm trying to guess is it going to come this way or not as we're sitting there it got closer and closer and closer and then the rain started and the wind came and we knew oh we're going to get soaked. So we rushed back into the jungle to tidy up our belongings so they didn't all get completely wet. And we were a long way into the jungle, so walking quicker and quicker and quicker. It wasn't running, but walking very, very quickly because the rain started to pour down. And as I was walking speedily to my campsite, I could feel something on my leg, and I thought it was just a wet leaf grabbing that so sort of my leg had brushed by because it was going through the jungle so I didn't even look, I just felt it but after running for about 20-30 metres this wet leaf didn't fall off my leg so I, Oh, strange. so I looked down and it was a tarantula, it was the size of my hand and the tarantula didn't want to get wet either so it was sitting on my leg trying to get out of the rain because it was a terrible storm So I was trying to collect up all my robes and shake my leg at the same time, (laughs) and get off, get off. (laughs) And it's tarantula. I wasn't thinking it could bite me, but you know they are deadly. I was just thinking, get off my leg, get off. And it wouldn't let go. It wouldn't let go. It just wanted to stay on my leg because it was more, safer there than anywhere else, I guess. So I started grabbing my robes. In the end I just had to really shake my leg really, really violently, and eventually it dropped off and went and hid under a rock or something. And I gathered my stuff together. The next day a man, little old man who collected bamboo shoots in the forest came by and he said, Oh, you have to be careful around here. There's a lot of tarantulas in this part of the forest. I said, Yeah, I know, I met one said, yeah, last year a guy came out collecting bamboo shoots. He, was, he got a tarantula on his leg and he was bitten and he died. And I said, oh, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. <laughs> uh, but luckily this tarantula was just like anyone else, just looking for a place out of the rain. He wasn't looking for, to harm anyone. few questions tonight uh, oh. first question how is a picture of a skull used during meditation this is part of the first foundation of mindfulness contemplating the body mindfulness directed to the body and there's many ways we can direct mindfulness to the body You can be aware of the posture, mindful of the posture, mindful of the breath, mindful of the 32 parts of the body. You know, one of the chants we might do one day, we chant that. Go through the body parts one by one and you can visualize them, put your attention on each body part. So hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. One, one part is the bones. So you can put your attention on one particular bone. It could be the skull, the chest bone or the arm bone. And you hold your attention there, maybe visualize that bone. So it could be the skull. You're contemplating, you're directing your attention to be mindful of the bone. And uh, you might recollect bone, 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 or the Pali is Ati, or Ati Kang. You might visualize that bone, the skull. Maintain the image in your, your mind, just to put your attention on a part of the body. And then when the mind calms down, Maybe you can see that image very clearly. It doesn't disappear. You might reflect, uh, this bone, what is it? It's made up of the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. Is this bone a being or a person? Is it really me, mine, myself? Or is it just part of the four elements? normally we just take this whole body as, as being me, myself. We look in a mirror and we take everything to be me, myself. Anything we feel in this body, we take that feeling, the sensation as myself. We don't investigate very deeply to see whether that perception or that understanding is true or not. So you can focus on a body part, like the bone, skull, partly to see the lack of self in this body, to see it's not really anything lasting. You can say, it's really me. It's even possible, say, when they do some kinds of surgery, they can actually cut a piece of bone out of your skull, completely remove it, and you don't die. You could say, well, if, if that b- bone is really me, where's it gone? How come it can be taken away and a, this body is still functioning? The bone is not, ultimately it's not self. And when we die, our bones go back to the earth. Bone is also not attractive. That's why we don't think of bones very much. Usually we associate a picture of a skull with horror movies or pirates or something. Or something unpleasant. And that's because a a skull is unattractive. But when you contemplate it with mindfulness directed to that image of the skull and contemplating the true nature of a skull, what it is, you're seeing, well, this body does have its unattractive parts to it. You know, we spend all our time trying to beautify the body, stand in front of a mirror and we comb our hair and shape it and we try to make our appearance look good, attractive and pleasant. And so we get stuck into that way of looking at the body But when we're meditating, we're going deeper than that. So we're looking at these body parts and saying, well, inside this body is not that attractive. It doesn't last. It's not attractive. Ultimately, it's not a self that we can control and make do what we want. We can't live forever. And as we contemplate like this, the mind starts to calm down. It actually helps us to readjust the way we see this body. We develop a quality of equanimity, upekha, towards the body. Rather than being caught into the attraction to the body and according to the attraction with other people's bodies, you know, the physical appearance, the beauty of the body. We balance up our views. so We say, well, the body also has its unattractive side. And when you practice that correctly, what arises is happiness in the mind, contentment as it lets go of its attachment. So far from being scared or or, you know, like you watch a horror film or something get all scared. You contemplate the skeleton, you actually become peaceful and happy doing it. So when you do it as a meditation you might focus on, say if it's the skull that you're focusing on. You make that skull very clear in your mind. Very bright, very see the bones very clearly. You might have to look at a picture of a book or a In Thailand, sometimes they used to take us to the hospital to see an autopsy. You really see the different body parts close up very clearly. Or you can look at a book, a picture, an anatomy book, and really look at a skeleton rather than just reacting to it, Oh, I don't like that, or that doesn't look very nice. Just stop and look at the bone, become familiar with the shape of the bone, if you do a meditation, you close your eyes and you just send your mind to the face, say so if you're doing the skull meditation, you see you've got two holes where your eyes are. You know, the eyes are separate from the skull. So your skull has two big holes there where the eyes are. And it has a hole in the middle because your nose is actually separate from your skull. You take the nose off, you just have a hole there. Then you come down, you've got the mouth, and you've got the teeth at the top of the mouth, and you've got a jaw with teeth in it. The jaw is actually separate from the skull, it's another piece of bone. And you go around the back, you've got more holes, you've got the holes where the ears are. And You take your ears off, there's just a hole there, Because you have to have where the nerves and the fluid go into the brain. You come round the back and you go down and then you have another hole underneath your skull where it joins to the vertebrae and to all the blood vessels and the nerves go up into your brain. So your skull, if you look at it closely, is full of holes, spaces. Inside it's hollow. So we joke, we say, If you ever see a skull, you say, the empty mind. Because the skull is empty. There's no longer any brain inside. You can see on the skulls, very rarely do skulls look completely kind of smooth and pure. They have impurities on them. They have bumps and blemishes. You can even have these squiggly lines where you can see how the skull has grown from when you're a little baby Your skull grows as you age and so it gets expansion marks on it. When I was uh, 10 years old we had one boy in the class who had a totally flat head. Because when he was a baby he used to push his head against the side of his cot all the time. Whenever his mum wasn't looking, he's was always doing this. So he actually, because your skull is very soft when you're a baby, he pushed his head flat. <laughs> so when he grew into a, a, a child and your skull becomes f- harder and it's formed, he had a flat head. <laughs> so as you can imagine, he um, had a difficult time in school. Got a lot of comments about that. Your skull when you're young is very soft but as you get older it hardens, grows. You can contemplate the skull when you die, say, if you ever see a corpse, say, of somebody who's been buried in the ground and all the the flesh and all the body parts have gone, all that's left is the bone. You look at the skull and it changes colour. You know, from starts off very white, but then it starts to go brown and faded. becomes mixed with the earth. When they go, if you ever go on and see where they dig up, say an archaeological dig, old cities and buildings, and they find a skeleton. You know, sometimes the skull is just in a few pieces, and it looks very sort of dark because it's been in the ground so long. In the end our skull just goes back to earth and we say our skull, my skull but actually it's just earth it's just a temporary thing we borrow from the world and then it goes back to the world. So you can get both peace and insight from contemplating the skull or any other part of the body. And the more you, you contemplate the more, the brighter the mind becomes, the happier the mind becomes. It's not a contemplation that leads to uh, feeling depressed or afraid or anything like that. If that's happening, that's a sign you're you're, your you've got the wrong attitude. If you're doing it correctly, you get a sense of detached peace and the more fixed your mind becomes on the image of the skull and the contemplation, the more deeper it goes and the more peaceful the mind becomes. I know some monks who can just sit all day long contemplating a skull or a bones. They sit talking like this and they're seeing everybody's bones. They're not seeing people in the normal way. They're concentrating on the bones of people. If you're just seeing a skull, you don't even know if it's man or woman. If you just see a skull, the sense of identity, of personality, sex, Male, female, young, old, uh, culture, background, Asian, European, African. All that disappears when you just see a skull. All the sense of the personality, or we say personality view, sakaya ditti. You're eroding that away when you look at a skull and you contemplate what a skull really is. You can see how the mind makes things out of skulls, isn't it? Uh, if you ever see a skeleton, say in Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand, it used to have two skeletons, one on either side of the hall. And people who were coming to stay, like yourselves, coming to stay and meditate in the monastery, the first three nights always had to stay in the hall. It's like a test of your faith stay in the hall and there's just two skeletons there and so you're just in the hall all night with the skeletons. And everybody's the same. The first thing they say is is it haunted? Is there a ghost here? You know, there's no need to say that, no reason to say that, but it's the first thing people think, isn't it? is it haunted? Is there a ghost? We don't think, oh, that's a skeleton or four elements or it's just uh, Part of, part of the four elements. We always think, whose skeleton was that? Is the ghost still here? You know, that's the way we are as human beings. We keep thinking in terms of a being. Even if it's a dead person, we think, well, do they have a ghost? <laughs> and on and on the mind goes. It's always creating something out of nothing. Or... In Wat Chat we used to have a skeleton and everyone would come and they want to know who was it. Where did the skeleton come from? They're not looking at the skeleton and contemplating. They're thinking more about the history and the person. Whose skeleton was this? Why did they die? Why is this skeleton here in the monastery? How did it come to be here? We like to do that. We like to keep thinking and creating and thinking all kinds of extra things even around a skeleton. But when we meditate, we're not doing that. We're learning to let go of all the thinking, the creating, the proliferating. Just bring the mind back to peace. Just know a skull is a skull, or a skeleton is a skeleton. That's another question. Hmm. Please help to explain the danger of taking a little alcohol or cigarettes while practicing Buddhist meditation. In Thai would be greatly appreciated. Hmm. There's another question. Well, that first one... um, the reason we keep the fifth precept in the way it's worded is uh, to refrain from taking intoxicants so drink alcohol or drugs which cloud the mind and that's the important point about any kind of intoxicant it clouds our mind from Uh, even the first glass of wine or beer, whatever, your mindfulness, your clarity starts to be clouded. Your wisdom, your intelligence is clouded. Your judgment is clouded. So the more you drink, the more clouded your mind becomes. So the further away from the Dhamma your mind goes, you can't think straight, you can't contemplate, you can't concentrate very well you notice if you drink a little bit, one drink leads to a second. Uh, all these sort of phrases we use, you, know, you have a drink and you relax, you loosen up. You become so relaxed you have a second drink and then a third. You become so relaxed you end up just passing out. <laughs> uh, and also the, the teachers all say, you know you keep that fifth precept, because when you break the fifth precept, you know, when you drink or take drugs, it's very easy to break all the other precepts. You notice in this world, you know, a lot of the, the violence and aggression in the world is fueled by alcohol and drugs. A lot of the theft in the world is fueled by alcohol and drugs. A lot of the sexual misconduct, harmful sex, rape and so on, fueled by alcohol and drugs. A lot of the unskillful speech in the world filled by alcohol and drugs. So the more we can refrain and restrain that, the better for us, the better for others. I'll, maybe I'll speak in Thai in a moment. The other part of the question, if you have a moment to expand on your experience of pain coming and going in meditation, the impermanence of pain, also what does this mean about stubborn illnesses such as cancer can meditation help Well you notice all all of us have already been practicing with pain I'm sure nobody has gone through today without at least a little bit of pain and maybe a lot of pain and yet you're all managing very well, aren't you? Nobody is screaming out or making a big fuss. So that means you've already learned to some extent how to deal with pain. Just sitting on the ground like this, sometimes you'll get pain in the leg and the back. How is it that you've learned that? Well, you learn to be able to recognize pain is a feeling, your mind can know that painful feeling, but then you're just knowing it as just that much, just painful feeling arising into your consciousness, whatever the part of body it's associated with, or maybe just mental pain, the mental suffering of some experience. The more you develop meditation, the more mindful you become, you're able to see pain as a feeling, and that feeling is impermanent. It's not self. You know, that feeling arises according to conditions. So if you sit on the ground for a long time, maybe pain arises. That's the condition for pain. Having a body, having tendons and different parts of the body which get stretched or pressed and so on, the conditions of painful feelings arising into your consciousness, but then it passes away and pain changes. Sometimes it's there, sometimes not. Sometimes it's very intense, sometimes just very weak. Mindfulness is showing us, we just become aware of pain as pain, just one feeling, one kind of feeling. Just like pleasure. Pleasure is another feeling. We Feelings of pleasure arise, pass away, according to conditions. And as we meditate, we become more equanimous towards feeling pain and pleasure. And you see it just as pain without, we say, creating any self around the pain. So it's take, your mind starts to let go of all the worry and anxiety around the pain, the fear of pain, the aversion to pain. Obviously that takes time, so sometimes we're better at it than others. Sometimes we can really determine our mind to meditate on the breath and we let go of all our pain and maybe it all just disappears after time because the mind is so fixed on its object. Other times, whatever you do, you can't concentrate on your breath because the pain is so strong. All you can think about is the pain. So sometimes you make the pain your object, you can do that in meditation. You direct your mind to the feeling of the pain and just know it. Oh, there's this feeling here. And try and separate the mind that knows and the pain from all the mental proliferation, your reaction. I don't like this pain, I don't want this pain. You know, all those thoughts and moods that come up associated with the pain, you're, you're trying to let go of them using mindfulness. And obviously that can be used, that technique, applying mindfulness directed to pain, just being mindfully aware of pain in the present moment, you can use that with illness. You maybe have some illness, whether it's temporary or a long-term illness, where pain arises, painful feelings. And you can meditate on that, especially if it's a pain that you can't get rid of, you can't suppress through drugs, you can't get rid of it through treatment. Well, then better to practice mindfulness directed towards that pain. Uh, on a regular basis so you gently at first you gently direct your mind to that part of the body where the pain is and you gently get to know it gently establish awareness of it with trying not to force yourself so you're not making yourself too miserable we're just trying to develop ability to be aware of pain as pain and without thinking a lot about it but just knowing the experience for what it is and if you meditate regularly, you'll get better at that. I'll say a few words in Thai because I requested that. Samraab kam um, tamani Nung rao Alcohol ย่เสปติตังตังก็เพราะว่ามันทําให้สติ <tries> ก็เสื่อมทีละนิดยิ่งดื่มคุณธรรมคุณๆหายจากจิตใจพระพุทธองค์ๆไอวาจาเสียไปด้วยๆหายไปทีละข้อที่ 3 ก็ไม่ต้องถามมันค่อยๆเราก็งดไปเลยก็งดปฏิเลย์คนอื่นว่ายังไง <San> ดื่มเหล้าในสังคมอะไรต่างๆวันมองอีทําไมสมัยก่อนเราก็ดื่มเหล้าก็เอ๊ะคนไม่ค่อยสํารวมเวลาดื่มเหล้า <the> <vidéo> จิตใจก็ตามท่านให้เราพยายามเพ่งสติอยู่ <coughs> สร้างความรู้ความเข้าใจในอาการที่มัน Tha sattidi puru puru sangop fuk ถ้าสติดีจะทํามานี้ได้ก็ๆฝึกสติฝึกสมาธิให้มันดังสุขภาพจิตดีขึ้นก็จะมี dear Ajahn when I undertake the eight precepts my mind is very peaceful lay life is like fire what is the next step to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds like somebody's ready to shave their head and ordain mm-hmm. well that at least you can appreciate the benefit of the eight precepts There, there supportive for the practice of meditation for bringing up the right conditions for developing and deepening meditation simplifying our life not too many external concerns so as any time we can keep the eight precepts then we it's a good thing to do Uh, if you're getting the peace from them then do it as much as you can maybe every if you have to work, maybe every weekend, keep the eight precepts. Or when you have a holiday, try to keep the eight precepts either at home or you can go on retreats, stay in temples and so on. If you have to, still have to work, you have a family to look after, well try to balance it so you're not pushing yourself too hard dealing with things like not eating in the evening. Sometimes that's quite difficult. But the Buddha encouraged all lay people to try the eight precepts at least periodically. So once a week, once a month, a few times a year. Just develop it as much as you can. Use these as trainings to be done as much as you can. And then you're, you're creating the, the conditions for your mind to go deeper in meditation. It'll probably settle down quicker when you meditate. And if you ever have the chance to come and live more long term in a, a monastery or a place where they practice the eight precepts all the time, you'll find it very easy because you've been practicing already. When we take Vaitana in Panchupadana Kanda, it can be Sukha Vaitana, Dukha Vaitana, Upeka Vaitana. May lead to Lopa, may lead to Dosa. My question is, may Upeka lead to Moha? Is that, yes. Yes, it certainly can lead to Moha. Generally, considered um, a condition for dullness of mind. Upeka-waitana, a you know, neutral feeling, you don't, don't feel any particular pain or stress, don't feel particularly uh, happy or pleasurable experiences, you're just feeling very neutral, tends to lead to dullness of mind. But as with both dukkha and sukha try to establish mindfulness of the Waitana as it's arising and not let it lead on to craving and attachment of the mental proliferation that Waitana leads on to you. You try to establish mindfulness with all your experience. Say the experience of sense contact. Say seeing, establish mindfulness of seeing and whatever waitana is arising sensations from the body tasting, hearing and probably the hardest one is internally the mind consciousness all the thoughts that pop up into the mind when there's not much mindfulness then the mind often is experiencing Upeka waitana. but we don't realize it and that's why it contributes to a sense of dullness Sometimes people like opaque because it's well it's at least it's better than dukha waiter, so some people like to feel dull we like to feel numb if we've had a lot of stress and trauma or pain in our life, then to feel numb seems good, even though it still it's it contributes to dullness of mind it's not a numbness of coming through wisdom and, and mindfulness it's just and it, you might say an escape from a lot of pain. So that's something to observe in yourself. It's try and find out how your mind is reacting to different waitanas, how it may even crave obviously we tend to crave Sukha and seek to get away from Dukkha weightana but these are things to learn from in your practice how is weightana affecting you? What is the nature of waitana? You know, even Sukha Vaitana, the most pleasurable experience you can have. Pleasurable feelings, mental pleasure, physical pleasure. Still just feeling arises, passes away. Doesn't last. Hmm. Uh, easy question. What does Ajahn mean? Ajahn is a Thai word which usually is translated as teacher comes from the Pali acharya which means teacher, one who teaches Dhamma. In Thai Ajahn can refer to a lay person, could be a, a lecturer in a uni or a college, could be a doctor, could be someone in a position like that. Position of authority or knowledge. But in the monastery, Ajahn usually means to a senior monk who is a teacher. Usually, when a monk reaches ten reigns, being a monk for ten years, they call them ajan. Last question What are the karmic reactions for those who whisper loudly? Or talk when others are meditating. At least trying hard to concentrate. True, this is one way we can help each other by not talking when others are meditating. Not talking around others. Whether it's a loud whisper or a soft shout or ordinary level voice. Whatever you call it. If it's done near somebody meditating, it's going to disturb them, isn't it? So out of appreciation of others' efforts in meditation, we should try to be more careful, especially around the meditation hall or around the tents where people are resting or meditating in their tent. Often we don't know, do we, what someone else is doing. They might just be sitting on a chair meditating, but we think, oh, it doesn't matter, and we talk a lot. So to be more sensitive to others is always beneficial to ourselves, to others. Creates a good atmosphere for meditation. If people have been careful what they say, how much they say, the tone of their voice, where they're speaking. You know, it helps us to be more mindful and helps other people. So the hall is not a good place to speak unless it's absolutely necessary. Um... Ajahn Cha was very very strict on this. If people would talk in the meditation hall, he'd quite often directly just say, Shut up. Because <laughs> usually it means they've lost their mindfulness and they forget where they are, what's going on and other people are meditating. If somebody's just about to enter a deep say state of samadhi, just concentrating and then someone's talking about, you know, what they're gonna have for the meal tomorrow right next to them. And they come out of their samadhi. You've Ajahn Chah always said you've made some bad karma for yourself by talking and disturbing that person. We all know how difficult it is to concentrate the mind. You know, everyone tries every day. So if you're doing something that's making it even more difficult for others, you know think about that. Oh we know how difficult it is. Why increase the, the obstacles to samadhi by talking too much in the wrong time or the wrong place. We make karma that way. Maybe I'll end on an interesting story. Lumpur was a great monk who lived in Thailand in Ayutthaya province. He died about 20 years ago now. He's a very quiet monk. Even though he's a very senior teacher with a lot of responsibility, a big monastery, he didn't talk much. He would answer questions about Dhamma practice, but he wouldn't talk more than necessary. And he was known as a monk who didn't talk much, very quiet and greatly respected by the Sangha as a meditation master. One day he came into the meditation hall And there was one monk already sitting there meditating and he came in and sat down to meditate and two new monks who weren't yet very disciplined came into the hall and started having a very loud conversation while Lumpur Du and this other monk were meditating completely destroying the peaceful atmosphere of the hall. And then after their conversation, they walked out of the hall, they went away. And the other monk finished his meditation, got up, and Lumpurdu just talked to him and just said, he didn't give any explanation, he just said, in the time of the Buddha, there was one monk meditating and he got into a state of deep samadhi. But as he was sitting there, this uh, this bird, kind of owl that makes a very loud screeching noise, kept flying past the monk making this very loud screeching noise he said when that monk died it was born in a very deep hell realm and it's still there 2500 years later he said that bird is still in that hell realm and then he got up and he walked away so Maybe that's enough for tonight. Obviously, there's no one making it thunder, so the thunder isn't making any karma, but it's also disturbing us. So some sounds you just have to put up with, don't you? (laughs) You have to learn how to be patient. If anyone is struggling tonight and your tent is overflowing, Uh, You can always make an emergency retreat to the kitchen and sleep there for a night. Um, The weather forecast is a little bit more rain tomorrow, but no thunder and lightning, and then the rest of the week dry, so they say. So we shall see. Anyway, um, we'll end here and continue on 5 a.m. tomorrow morning.